Welcome to Paved Paradise, a podcast about housing in Los Angeles, told from the perspective of residents, activists, artists, and city officials. I'm your host, Sue Bell Yank. In this episode, we tackle the idea of creative placemaking. What is it? And what role do artists, along with the cities, public institutions, and private foundations that support their work, play in the shaping of the city. Boyle Heights is a neighborhood in Los Angeles, just east of downtown, and its mostly Mexican immigrant and Chicano population has been there for decades. Although low income, it has been a well-organized community since the 1960s, successfully working with city planners in the 70s on a community plan that preserved a lot of its affordable housing and neighborhood character. Many other city revitalization efforts at the time, revitalization being a code word for tearing down a ton of stuff, led to massive displacement of low-income residents in areas that were assessed to be blighted. The community has been organized against gentrification for some time, with a group of residents, mostly mothers, protesting plans to tear down the Pico Gardens and Aliso Village public housing developments. But in 2016, it entered the national spotlight with highly visible anti-gentrification protests against a series of blue-chip art galleries moving into the area. There's a fierce battle over gentrification in Boyle Heights. People worry they'll be priced out of their homes. As KCONLINE's Joy Benedict reports, protesters were out today with a strong message for their new neighbors. The community has asked the galleries to leave. Folks in Boyle Heights have had enough, standing at the steps of this art gallery. What are you doing? What the f*** are you doing? Angry when someone came to open. The gate was lifted and the protest continued, all in response to a possible hate crime investigation after someone vandalized the gallery door. Two activist groups, Defend Boyle Heights and the Boyle Heights Alliance Against Artwashing and Displacement, or BHAD, used a series of militant actions, protests, and internet campaigns to put pressure on these new art galleries to leave. They accuse the galleries of participating in art washing, a term that calls attention to the phenomenon of artists and art galleries moving into low-income neighborhoods and ultimately attracting the businesses, clientele, and developers that lead to increasing rent and property values, resulting in the massive displacement of current residents. Much of the community's efforts has been directed at art galleries, which they see as the thin edge of the wedge for gentrification. They've served galleries with symbolic eviction notices. Some gallery owners sympathize with the protests, but say new government policies are what's needed to preserve some low-income housing. Activist Angel de la Luna has a message for the newcomers. We don't want you here, that there are economic consequences to your presence here, and that we will suffer from those and you will benefit and that is not something you know we as latin latino working class people want to go through so you need to get out of here a community organized to hold back the tide of gentrification rob reynolds al jazeera los angeles though gentrification and displacement has many other studied causes including a global affordable housing crisis housing policies that erode affordable rents and lead to illegal evictions 
and landlords and developers seeking ever greater profit at all costs, artists and art galleries can be the canary in the coal mine for neighborhoods threatened by it. Artists themselves are questioning their role in gentrification, often with great anguish. In 2017, there was a meeting at an art gallery called 356 Mission in Boyle Heights for progressive artists to form a political action network in response to the Trump presidency. A picket line of Defend Boyle Heights activists formed to protest the very existence of that gallery in a highly visible way. And many artists who were interested in joining the group, a lot of whom were activists themselves, refused to break the picket line. Others were confused and hurt by this protest, sympathetic to the cause but critical of the tactics against what they saw as a community of artists largely in solidarity with the protesters. 356 Mission later shuttered, along with half of the dozen art galleries that had popped up in the Boyle Heights flats near the LA River. But 10 years ago, it was a very different story. Back then, Art galleries moving into a low-income neighborhood might be called creative placemaking, to center arts and culture and provide economic opportunity for a diversity of people in the neighborhood. I don't want to downplay the work of anti-gentrification activists, many of whom saw this harbinger very early on, and even some supporters and funders of creative placemaking who were sensitive even then to the havoc such arts districts could have on a neighborhood. But the more mainstream view was to think of this as a positive thing. And community development is almost like all the other kinds of development questions that aren't driven by the private market. That's Sarah Delayden, an artist based in Los Angeles and Milwaukee, who has been working with cities on community development projects for a number of years. Or sometimes I feel like it's all the other development questions that are meant to balance all the things that are horrific about the private real estate market. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, yeah, we're putting some money into, again, a park, or we're putting some money into, like, a healthcare center, you know, something that gives, like, that's what community development is. And so I'll be like, well, this is about, you know, getting artists to be involved with community development, or we can make performances or workshops or other things happen as a way of getting neighbors out so we can ask them what they want to see in the neighborhood. Like, we use arts to attract people. People might just automatically go to, like, oh, you're going to put a piece of sculpture in a park or something like that. Do you find that you often get that kind of reaction at mural. first? A mural. A mural. Always the murals. And I <laughs> love murals. I feel like murals get such a bad rap, but they're, like, so abused. You know, and sometimes, actually, I, I, what my trajectory, I spent more time saying, like, oh, this is just getting an artist on your team. You know, this is mm. just because, you know, artists will just have another way of looking at the situation. So let's just pay them to be on the team. But, you know, I look at it and, again, see where my own actions are located and then see all these other artists I brought in. Local artists was a way for me to actually bring in, uh, like, a resident or a worker from mm. the area that was able to use their voice and describe and suggest. So what is creative placemaking? The National Endowment for the Arts commissioned a white paper in 2010 by Anne Markison and Anne Godwa on creative placemaking. This period was arguably its zenith. The NEA's Our Town grants, which aimed to, quote, provide opportunities for the arts to be integrated into the fabric of community life, end quote, 
started that year, and a coalition of public agencies and private funders created Art Place America in 2011, which invested millions in creative placemaking and creative community development projects. Markison and Gadwa defined creative placemaking in their white paper as partners from public, private, nonprofit, and community sectors strategically shaping the physical and social character of a neighborhood, town, city, or region around arts and cultural activities. Creative placemaking animates public and private spaces, rejuvenates structures and streetscapes, improves local business viability and public safety, and brings diverse people together to celebrate, inspire, and be inspired. Together, creative placemaking's livability and economic development outcomes have the potential to radically change the future of American towns and cities. The Kresge Foundation, part of the coalition that formed ArtPlace, is a little more nuanced in what is and is not considered creative placemaking. They do mention words like displacement, and they have pretty specific ideas about what community participation really means. It's also interesting what they do not consider to be creative placemaking projects, like standalone arts and cultural projects that benefit one organization, arts education, and outreach activities, one-time community arts projects like murals or festivals, and one-time beautification projects like landscaping or infrastructure. It sets a pretty high bar. These projects must be creative, culturally sensitive, inclusive, and improve a place without leading to gentrification and displacement. So now that we know what creative placemaking aspires to be, where did it come from? It's a nice idea that centering arts and culture will lead to better community development. But where did this idea originate? I asked Annette Kim, who is an associate professor of public policy at USC and the director of the Spatial Analysis Lab there. You know, some people would say this is not what was the intention, but, you know, Richard Florida's creative class book kind of got folded into the arts policy forums and discussions. And it, because in, I think, the arts policy world, a lot of times with public funding, you need to justify why are you using public money for the arts. They, maybe they latched on more onto his um, popular book that it could spur economic development. Again, you know, that was the main way to validate uh, urban interventions before was economic development. And to make that connection between arts and economic development was one way to um, show its value. Uh, and so people are trying to measure the GDP impact of arts. And you have to get very loose with the term arts and culture in order to see something on that scale. Richard Florida is an American economist and social scientist who wrote a book about what he called the creative class. According to him, this new class of intellectuals and artists can transform the economies and structures of cities by bringing new business ideas, high-tech industries, and creative content to cities. Silicon Valley and Silicon Beach in California are examples, as well as the Triangle in North Carolina, Austin, and Seattle. When researchers look into what places attract this new creative class, it's clear that where people choose to live can no longer be predicted in the same way as they were in industrial cities, such as people will go to the places where jobs and factories are. 
Creative workers are not as tied to a physical location because they work with intellectual products. Their migration to metropolitan urban areas where creative work is available is more due to the attraction of leisure life, community, and a network of others like themselves. In other words, creative workers are looking for cultural, social, and technological climates in which they feel they can best be themselves. This last bit, I think, is one of the reasons why the ideas behind creative placemaking have taken hold with cities and with business leaders. If a city can foster strong communities with arts, culture, and creative outlets at the center, this will attract people in this creative class that Florida describes. There are lots of criticisms of Florida. Other social scientists have questioned his data and whether the category of the creative class, which is really broad and includes not only artists and architects, but also scientists and tech workers, is a really useful one. But the biggest criticism is that the creative class thesis and the way cities have created policies around this idea in order to make attractive creative cities, in fact, makes social and economic inequalities in cities in America worse. To attract the creative class, cities need to rely on inner-city property development, gentrification, and displacement, and the labor of extremely low-wage service workers who are increasingly unable to afford the cities they work in. But that is not to say that artists should not have a role in shaping cities. Just what that role should be, and how it should be approached, is a topic of great debate these days. Here's artist Sarah Delayden again. Every time someone says creative placemaking to me, I think about it as a construct coming out of U.S. American foundations in collaboration with the National Endowment for the Arts. Sometimes it's the actual production of arts and culture with the project, and sometimes it's just using strategies, or I would say using practitioners. So how do artists get involved in decision-making around development questions that are at play in a neighborhood? And then sometimes how can they really produce works? These are cultural production questions meaning the decisions that are made about how a piece of land or a specific building or a street or how any of this will function and or change and grow will directly affect the social nature of that place. So how people are even finding each other, what they're doing together, how they perceive whether they're part of an entity, like do they think they're part of the same neighborhood. So the point is, is there's always this language issue, this like identity, maybe branding, maybe just straight up communication piece of every development question. So I just think the artists can really get into those representational questions. Mm. We're skilled at building representations, we're skilled at dissecting them, critiquing them, understanding the power of, of identity, basically. And I do believe that artists have a role in shaping the city. This is Felicia Feiler, who is head of public arts in the cultural affairs department of the city of Los Angeles. City public art projects are one of the places where creative placemaking initiatives play out on the city level. That is fundamentally, you know, the principle that underscores the work of this department. That's why we have, you know, public art and, 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 and community arts and grants program, because so that artists can participate in the civic life of the city. That said, especially in, in working in the public realm, that there is this notion that artists are this should have this protected class and that the environment should be pristine and easy for them to walk into and they can wave their hands and, and do this magic and then 
and not have to sort of take a, a deeper level of responsibility about their participation. So it's this idea of this sort of preciousness that artists have had historically that I think needs to be rethought by them. That if, in fact, you are going to participate in the civic life of the city, and if, in fact, as an artist, if you're going to participate in the public realm, that this is not a precious undertaking. This is, you have a responsibility as an artist to come to the table, to get involved. You have a particular way of looking at situations. You have a particular way of solving, coming up with solutions. You have a particular bent on aesthetics. Those are the skills that, that, are, we, that we are interested in and utilizing to, for the betterment of the city. But to, to remove that sort of precious status that surrounds artists is, I think, something that's critically needed and that, and that until we do that, we're, the, the, the place for artists, there's going to be this kind of friction between artists when they sort of come into the public realm and, and they have this one expectation and a way of working versus what we're really trying to tease out of them. So this is a way to bring artists into the development process from the beginning, to be at the table with planners, developers, everyone who makes these kinds of land use decisions. This is the gold standard for what creative placemaking could be. Is there room for that in the city process? What you've just described um, is in fact a high standard. Um, For the first you know, 10 to 15 years of the City of Los Angeles Public Art pro- Project, I would say that the public art was considered kind of the stepchild of of the you know the, the local art world, which is fine. Um, and but that has shifted. Now there is a high demand for um, artists to work in public spaces. There's a high desire for for that to happen. And now that that the city has sort of matured in its in its artistic and cultural community, the planners, if you will, the the developers understand the the particular role the public art can play and therefore they have there's a maturity and a more sophisticated understanding of bringing this work to the table early on that said even within a development project whether it be private or public the the aim of the development is broader than just quote unquote a creative placemaking it is it is trying to provide housing or uh, constituent services or retailing or uh transportation, it, the, 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 the aim of the development is really trying to solve much more systemic issues affecting the community. And so by bringing in the, the public artist or the artist or organization who wants to work in the public realm, we are in fact inviting them to the table to bring their particular set of skills to help solve and address the overarching goals of the project. Therefore, the project is not the artist is not coming to the table to make a creative place, but they're bringing their creativity and their particular way of, of, of looking at an issue and solving a problem to a broader gestalt of what's happening in the community. So that's why, again, I, I, I don't think of bringing the artist to, uh, to the planning table, to the broader table as creative placemaking. I think of them as coming to the table to solve much more systemic issues in the community. What can the role of artists or creative organizations be in that space? Mm -hmm. You know, because there is that constant tension between like people's needs. They need glasses or they need healthcare, you know, (laughs) and do they need art? You know, that that seems always to kind of fall lower on the scale. So 
but they do. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, you certainly make that argument, but um, that that's what helped me because um, I mean, I care so much about those material needs, but then when it's always a campaign and problem focused, and they're real, and you know, those things need to be addressed, but. What I realize is so special about art is that it shows our full humanity because we don't only have problems that we need to fix and have campaigns and people grow weary. They're also full human beings and want to sing and want to, you know, uh, laugh and want to uh, be curious and, you know, and to deny those aspects to, quote, problematic communities is really dehumanizing Mm. and um, I think that's the power of the arts I mean I think of especially informal arts people doing it because they really need it for a living Um, and when you hear like why do people do it it's a moment when you're liberated from the human condition and that's the power of art and what creative placemaking and just placemaking brought to the forest there's other really important aspects to what we're endeavoring to do as a public and you know people's um, sense of belonging sense of um, identity can be tied to a place but then it spun off a whole industry i mean it was so um, gratifying to have it be taken seriously when maybe in earlier eras I would kind of be seen as fluff. Um, that was taken seriously. There's funding, national funding behind the city. Governments were behind it, which was great to validate these other realms of human life that are important. But um, it kind of, like a lot of things, became a boilerplate program. The last. Uh, 10 years and increasingly vehement vocal opposition to official creative placemaking is that it's become about uh, real estate development and might spur gentrification, it, it packages culture as a commodity, etc. And it doesn't have to be that way. There's sort of a backlash I see developing in really, I thought, really great, quote, creative placemaking projects. What Annette is referring to are several artist-driven development projects that have been lauded as important creative placemaking projects that made a difference in their cities. All of them had a charismatic, artistic leader at the helm and were designed to be long-term projects that would materially improve their neighborhoods. In the Greater Grand Crossing neighborhood of the south side of Chicago, Artist Theaster Gates has been systematically buying up dilapidated properties and refurbishing them into community and cultural spaces, like the Black Arts Cinema and the Stony Island Arts Bank. Part of his work has also been focused around keeping housing affordable in an effort to improve their neighborhood without gentrifying it and displacing the current low-income, mostly Black residents. In Houston's historic Third Ward, Rick Lowe started Project Row Houses in 1995 when he bought some abandoned shotgun houses and refurbished them into art galleries and housing for young single mothers. That organization has also grown over time, adding an affordable housing and community development arm that has sought to both improve the neighborhood materially and stem the tide of displacement. 
But critics argue that Gates's rebuild project in Chicago lacks community buy-in and simply participates in a system that will inevitably lead to gentrification and displacement, despite the organization's claim to the contrary. They accuse him of artwashing, the same term used in Boyle Heights to describe how the presence of artists contributes to the redevelopment of a neighborhood by profit-driven developers. And it's honestly a bit hard for me to see how that could be prevented, even with the best of intentions. Rick Lowe and Project Row Houses have had some similar criticisms, but have mainly managed to avoid them because their work is almost entirely focused on community development and affordable housing and is limited in scale. It's meant to be a model that could be replicated elsewhere. But the broader story of housing in Houston is telling. Writer Ben Davis points out that the housing problem in Houston has gotten worse, not better, since Project Row Houses started, and that in 2012, 33,000 people flooded the city in one single day with applications for Section 8 housing vouchers just to get on the waitlist. He writes, quote, juxtapose against this tremendous need, the handful of properties that the Project Row Houses maintains seems like a drop in the bucket a feel-good footnote to the real story. The number of Houston-area residents living in extremely poor neighborhoods nearly doubled over the past decade, end quote. I'm trying to understand it, but I think what um, is a fundamental difference is some people don't want to be a part of the conventional capitalist system. And what some of these projects have done is find savvy ways to have their communities valued, maybe get some jobs and get better housing and help materially uh, with people's lives. But other people are calling them sellouts. So I think that's a fundamental conflict that's happening right now live, like you see in Boyle Heights. There seems like a spectrum of resistance that I've noticed, you know, Mm -hmm. where there's concern about the Mm co-option of the term, right? That rather than creative placemaking being something that's intended to actually develop the social relationships between communities or create spaces that allow that to happen, that it's something that's purely for profit to raise the real estate values Mm -hmm. of a place. And then I think there's folks who um, are just against even the premise because they, they feel that the, the profit driven nature is inevitable. Mm -hmm. So even people who are well-intentioned may have the best interests of people in mind, you know, get, get swept up in that idea. Like there's nothing they can do, you know, (laughs) the the sort of overwhelming force of capitalism is going to, is going to push it in that direction anyway. And so they shouldn't participate at all. Right. Yeah. I think the way you uh, outlined it is similar to my read on it currently. We're actually researching that right now. Hmm. One of the things we're doing is uh, looking at Boyle Heights, where art has been implicated as part of the gentrifying process. Well, one thing we're doing now is, I think one of the conflicts we see is who is actually best representing the community is unclear. And so we're doing a survey <laughs> of, of, through the local institution of Pomatoras. We're doing a survey of households and seeing where their thoughts are, because right now it's been you know, interviewing different organizations or leaders, but we wanted to also get a sense of, you know, everyday people, where are they at? They're the ones who are going to be experiencing a lot of these changes. They might also have had ties to some of these organizations. And so that's a voice I see uh, left out a little bit in this. 
to me, there is no doubt that it's only an opportunity for uh, even more creativity. This is, uh, you know, in no way like some sort of a sensor on on creative space. It's everything but. It's mm. it's an opportunity to uh, have a reality check mm-hmm. uh, on on uh, where we where we are in the world. That's Hike Mokmorian, an artist who runs a community art space in LA's Skid Row neighborhood and an activist involved in the struggle for affordable housing in Los Angeles. He sees the flashpoint of Boyle Heights as a real reckoning for artists to consider how they get involved in communities. One of these reckonings has to do with how long these community-based projects last and what their effect really is. I've been thinking about like just shifting language around what is community involvement, what is community, in, uh, maybe it's community entrenchment, maybe it's everything to do with longevity and consistency for like I'm talking years and maybe a short-term project is actually never a community project it can hopefully think about how it can support how it can collaborate align with existing community work or not in which case you know uh, there would be possibly some consequences or reactions but actually not even pretending that they are a community project yeah. if it's if it's three months or six months see what's happening in the community and see how you can sit in a lot of meetings and figure out how you plug into existing community work, uh, but don't call yourself a community yeah. project. Yeah. Can you work with short-term projects for the longer-term, more fundamental changes that mm. maybe these don't have to be in total opposition to each other, but it might be about strategy and timing and etc.? I really respect when there's a long-term engagement and commitment and otherwise it could be really shallow. But then on the other hand, I also think about, well, there's people like me who never really belonged anywhere. <laughs> and, uh, you know, immigrants, refugees, people, most Americans move around a lot. And so what if you don't have a community and but you're still taking some space? I think that's another way I think um, there could be other approaches. I mean, I think that in a way, that's what worries me a little bit about this notion of creative placemaking, um, kind of as a double-edged sword. You know, I worry that it's it's being used as the engineering of the city to even heighten these divides and promote arts districts, which will have even more niche marketing and displace people and contribute to increased gentrification um, that will, you know, further displace some of these neighborhoods and further segregate some of them. So that's a concern of mine, that it's a, that it becomes a co-opted term. It's a real impact. I would say it takes endurance and real careful critical action to not have it happen. It's like having a knife, you know? And you can use that knife to cut something that you want to have cut that's a healthy cut, and you can use that knife to cut something in an unhealthy or abusive way. It's the same knife. The idea of creative placemaking as a double-edged sword is gaining traction in part because of the backlash embodied by Boyle Heights. In Macon, Georgia, one recent story boiled over. The Macon Arts Alliance won a grant to fund a social practice residency for artists. 
in which artists were required to work with certain community members in the Mill Hill neighborhood, a four-block stretch of mostly dilapidated and boarded-up homes that is being revitalized into a community arts hub by the Urban Development Authority. They brought in Samantha Hill, an artist from Brooklyn, and Ed Woodham from Chicago. Just a few weeks into their residency, Hill and Woodham had their contracts terminated and later issued a statement that speculated that the true purpose of the Mill Hill Artist Residency was to artwash the neighborhood to prime it for gentrification. They claim that the residents they spoke to felt abused by the project and left out of the vision of the Macon Arts Alliance and said they felt bamboozled as to the true purpose of the artist residency. They referenced art washing in Boyle Heights and said that all artists need to ask themselves three urgent questions in regards to how prevalent art washing has become. Number one, what kind of art spaces are possible and what kind of arts institutions do we need to not only refuse complicity but resist gentrification? Number two, what kind of art practices can thrive and magically transform everyday life while refusing and resisting being a tool for growth by dispossession? And number three, what political movements can art contribute to that expose the lie of gentrification inevitability? You have artists who are being displaced, let's say in the case of downtown LA, but then you have communities that are being displaced in the, in the case of, you know, South LA and the Crenshaw area. These, these are, this is real situation. And so we have to look at that. You know, how is um, the, the, the private development sector and, and, the, and the requirement for arts and the, 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 the municipal sector and the requirements for arts, how is that contributing uh, to that phenomenon? The arts requirement that Felicia is referring to is the private arts development fee levied by the city of L.A. on profit-driven developments that cost over half a million dollars. A fee, dependent on the size of the development, must be paid by the developer to be dedicated toward public art for the public benefit. What exactly that public benefit entails has shifted dramatically over the years, especially in light of a backlash against art as a force of gentrification. The city's approach to art and public spaces has evolved over the years. Um, I would say the first for the first decade, um, the way that artists uh, responded or thought about making art was in response to the architecture. Right, There's, you build a new library, a new rec center, um, and the artist was looking at the, the integration of the artwork into the architecture. It was thinking about material choices in relation to the architecture. So it was really centered around either the type of activity that happened within that building or the architecture in itself. And then out of that, the artists try to sort of tease out some of the history of maybe the people to sort of respond to the people in the community, sort of memorialize some of the history of the people who were there. We've moved away from that, um, meaning we've given artists uh, sort of a free reign to, to not have to worry about the memorialization of a history, to not have to just respond to the architecture, but to have a completely different structure or set of objectives that, that basically that we have tried to free up the artists from being limited to only responding to the architecture. One example of that is the development of our new temporary public art biennial current L.A.
the current LA Biennial had its first iteration in 2016 and was an outdoors, temporary, and socially conscious biennial organized around the theme of water. Artists were selected because of their ability to interface with communities, and their projects were cited in areas of the city with little access to the arts normally. There was the hope that artists would engage these communities around the theme of water, a pressing topic in Southern California's drought-prone environment, with the goal to create some kind of social change. So the idea was, again, to free the artists from the constraints of architecture. There's no architecture. It's just you, the space, a theme, and how do you want to, how do the artists want to sort of attack that theme within that space? So this idea for us of, of having artists respond to a social issue and actually looking at it critically in a way that could actually transform people's thoughts and possibly change their behaviors and possibly move toward finding solutions for this issue that affects all of us. And that was, I think, a very, well, it was very, definitely very deliberate, but we, but, but we feel very strongly that public art has a capacity to create social change through dialogue, through civic engagement. And so we had to test that. The way that we structured that was, A, we, we identified artists who have what I guess is considered a social practice. Right? So this is an opportunity for us to work with artists whose work is in fact process-based as opposed to object-based. That was very intentional. This was a natural fit for them. For the artists who uh, maybe were new to public art or working in the public space and, and who still have a studio practice, meeting that objective was a little was challenging. In those instances, we had uh, public program providers who would come onto the sites, you know, a few days a week in some instances and reactivate the work, create another um, opportunity for, you know, people to come in and engage with the work and have it, and, and talk about the issues through performance, through music, through, you know, lectures, through film screenings, etc. So, but for the artists who, who have a strong social practice, that this was like heaven for them. We're interested in social cohesion you know, and, and a social impact. What is the social impact of this initiative? And there's not a lot of literature uh, that talks about the relationship of social impact and art. You know, most of the literature out there we've learned look at social impact in terms of education and maybe health. So there's not very much information that can sort of help guide in, in real quantitative terms and qualitative terms of what that is. If the biennial hoped to place artists throughout the city to engage community in a singular pressing topic, Sarah DeLayden's art practice is another example of how an artist can play a role in shaping the city, often from behind the scenes. Sarah used to be in an artist collective called the Los Angeles Urban Rangers. Its various members included architects, urban planners, and artists. Dressed as park rangers, they playfully offered tours and safaris to the public that pointed out many of the oddities of land use and the divides between private and public space that we encounter in the city on a daily basis. One of their most memorable safaris was through Malibu, where they identified illegal no-parking signs and no-trespassing signs, illegal fences, and other ways that homeowners had tried to block public access to the beach, which is a public right-of-way. They explored that boundary between private and public space, common land and corporate land, and where we, the public, 
fit into that? I still literally think like a ranger a lot. Like it became a whole way of thinking and actually moving through the city. I was thinking to myself about how much I walk, and I'll just walk over varying different terrains of Los Angeles. But something, you know, so for example, I might be in a space that has a sidewalk as a pedestrian space, and I'll not be like going over a major piece of infrastructure that no one walks. But for me, it's all about like hiking and being a ranger and understanding there is interconnectivity between all these pieces of land and not being scared maybe of the extremity of uses. Because again, LA will shift land use so quickly. So one of the things that we, I feel like we would always ask ourselves as rangers when we were producing a work, it's so like our public access one-on-one series, is yes, how do we make the invisible visible? And then I think the other thing is, how do we use this persona of a ranger? National Park Service is a borrowed persona. Again, we, in some ways, we're very carefully borrowing the uniform, the way of making brochures and maps, the way of leading a guided hike. You know, there's really direct communication tools of a National Park Service ranger as like a known character, as a known authority, I would say, but also as a character that was all about exploring and like, let's go see what's out there and be curious. Another important area in current creative placemaking is really building knowledge about the current state of our cities. How does art function in the city? How are our cities still shaped by race? Annette Kim has two initiatives at USC. SLAB and RAP, that do in-depth research into this area. SLAB stands for the Spatial Analysis Lab, and RAP stands for Race, Art, and Placemaking. What I see SLAB is about is working at this point in our intellectual history where um, there is a openness, a a greater possibility for fluidity between arts, humanities, and social science. Um, And I see... I think USC does this a lot in a lot of the schools. Um, I'm placed within a public policy school, a social and science school that really split away from arts and design in the past. And so I see it as me bringing it in in a different way. Um, It's a place to be experimental, creative. I really try to encourage creativity of students, which um, before seemed like a illegitimate way to be for a professional, you know, it's not rigorous, but I think now things have really opened up where we're realizing we need all the creativity we can get. We need new ways of thinking and communicating. I think with our current political era, it became really clear, just rigorous statistical analysis is not enough. (laughs) And apparently, you know, some people are even questioning facts and science and I think what's clear is we need to be able to engage and communicate much more and in different ways. Rap, race, arts, and placemaking, and it's now grown to 25 and counting faculty all across the university, including the law school, and you know, <laughs> where um, faculty are really passionate about this intersection with race and the cultural realm and justice issues. What do you see? the next evolution of this discussion being? The area that I'm uh, focusing on is cultural, conventional wisdom, public opinion area, because I think the legislative and policy changes are really important, but they don't become normalized until it's 
um, disseminated as the new normal or the new understanding of the facts, the situation. And so I think that happens on many levels, but in this kind of cultural realm. My current project is this project called Ethnicity, just how much um, race and ethnicity functions and shapes are the way we move around in the city and where we go, etc. And why I'm wanting to show that and also to visualize it and show the people um, who are in the city is to build up a vision, a, a broader popular vision that diverse, inclusive city can be a good thing, not a scary thing. <laughs> and uh, that's why I was so excited to come back to L.A. because I, I see an evolution in L.A. I mean, some of my colleagues will say this as well, you know, that maybe this turmoil the nation is having, we had it in the 70s and 80s. Mm. And that, you know, not that everything's rosy in L.A., right. but that I, I see a different kind of general knowledge and way to navigate between groups here in LA that's different from when I've lived in other parts of the country. Research like Annette's is key in this day and age, so we can walk into the next era of community development and creative placemaking with our eyes wide open. It's clear that something is shifting in this once popular idea of using art to make places better. And it has everything to do with the affordable housing crisis and how expensive cities are becoming. We have to think about how these projects are contributing to gentrification, how they might become co-opted by developers in order to jack up property values, and whether projects should be temporary or long-term and still be able to make important contributions to the communities they propose to serve. What can art and artists do in the face of such a massive housing crisis? I believe they can do some good. Art has the capacity to humanize the most marginalized among us, bring important voices to the table in the halls of power, and even get people invested and interested and organized in their own communities. It can absolutely be a catalyst but hopefully a catalyst for justice and empathy and knowledge and organizing, and not something that ultimately leads to the gutting and erasure of neighborhoods. Many thanks to Sarah Daleiden, Annette Kim, Heike McMorian, and Felicia Feiler. I've included links to all of their incredible projects on our website, pavedparadisepodcast.com, and I encourage you to find out more. Thanks, as always, to Mike Yang for composing the music for Paved Paradise. This is episode three of this six-episode series on housing in Los Angeles. And if you have a moment, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. It'll help other people find us. Thanks for listening. See you next time.